Welcome back to Anti-Social Studies. I'm really excited for today's episode, which is part of my conversation with Mr. Beat. So Matt Beat is a former history teacher, now just like a full-time history YouTuber. He's a big deal, like hundreds of thousands of subscribers. My students had heard of him before I'd heard of him, so he's legit. And he's coming on to teach me about a guy named Henry George. And if you saw that name in the title of this episode and went, who the heck is Henry George? I felt the exact same way when Mr. Beat emailed me saying that's what he wanted to talk about, which is perfect. That's the whole point of this podcast and me bringing these other experts on, right, is that you can always learn more. I know a ton about American history. And still, there was a guy who turns out was like the most prolific American economist and economic writer, maybe at least ever until the 20th century, and I had literally never heard of him before. So come along as he explains to us who Henry George was, how he rose up to be kind of a pre-progressive era, sort of populist reformer, trying to address inequality, growing inequality in kind of the Gilded Age, industrialized United States, and understand why we both think that Gen Z, especially, and like the TikTok Gen Z generation specifically, would really love this guy and might find themselves becoming Georgists. Enjoy. Welcome to Antisocial Studies. My name is Emily Glinkler, and I'm really excited because I have a guest today who goes by Mr. Beat. I'll let you introduce yourself. Uh, how would you introduce yourself? What's your thing? What do you do? What is your YouTube channel all about? Uh, well, like you, uh, a teacher in the classroom, uh, teaching social studies to middle schoolers and high schoolers, but, but I, I am no longer in the classroom. Uh, I did that for about 12 years, and then a couple years ago, I transitioned to just teaching online so i'm just making videos and that's where if you just search mr beat on youtube <clears throat> you won't find me you'll find mr beast uh <laughs> so just ignore all the mr beast videos and then keep scrolling and then scroll a little bit more and then you'll see mr beat that's me and uh, it's all social studies videos with a focus on uh mostly american political history is my specialty i guess <laughs> yeah was the proximity to mr beast intentional or that's just because it's your name. Absolutely not. I started my channel before him. Thank you, you very first. much. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it is just my name. Like, people don't believe yeah. me, but it's literally my legal name, Matthew Allen Beat. It's a really good <laughs> YouTuber name, I will say. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of people who don't understand antisocial studies and, and, like, don't get the joke and think that I am actually <laughs> against the teaching of social studies. Oh, <laughs> like I've, I've literally, I've had, uh, that's great. I had someone reach out to me because uh, they wanted, they were doing like a podcast debate about all this, you know, should we be teaching history in different ways or whatever? And they reached out to me because they thought maybe I would be the like con side. Like, no, we shouldn't yeah, be teaching yeah. history. And I was like, clearly you didn't look at any of my TikToks, but anyway. Um, so, okay, the point of this and having you come on as a guest and having lots of people come on as guests is that you are a very smart person you've sort of made a name for yourself as being a very smart talking head on YouTube, right? Like you are someone that kids and adults go to and say like, this guy seems to really know a lot, especially about American history and American politics. And so one, I just wanted you to come teach me something because I'm a nerd. And I went back to grad school for no reason other than I wanted to sit in a classroom again. But also, cause I just want to remind everyone out there that like the smartest people, like, don't know everything about everything and they continue learning more that it's not like you graduate high school or college and you're done. So I reached out to you and asked if there was something you wanted to teach me about. And I was so excited because you responded with a person I've literally never heard of before. So who are you teaching me about? Wow. Henry George. <laughs> Henry. Yeah. George. 
which I'm going to be honest, you said Henry George and Georgism, and my brain yes. thought he must be British. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure he's not. <laughs> so. Yeah, but definitely a boring name. Um, yes. Kind of does not stand out. Uh, but Georgism is named after him. It's his whole economic philosophy. And he was a big deal back in Whoa. the day. Okay. Yeah, he was a really big deal. But you just said economist, and that explains everything about why I have no idea who this person is, is because <laughs> economy is a black hole in my brain. I I am constantly attempting to better understand it, but I, I will be honest, it's one I struggle with. So this is perfect to have you come on. So if you were going to explain like who Henry George is and why you think he's interesting to someone who literally knows nothing about him, where would you start? Well, I made a video about him last year and uh, that's kind of how I framed it was just, uh, you know, like a linear story of a biography, basically, telling his upbringing. So I guess I'll do that with you as well, because, you know, right. you, maybe you, you can connect to uh, Henry here, you know, because I, I can sympathize with uh, being bored out of your mind when you just even hear the word economics. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Henry George was born in uh, 1838. Oh, I'm sorry, 1839. I already got it wrong. 1839. <laughs> I was trying you to go anything. off memory. <laughs> 1839, uh, and he was born in the U.S.? Yeah, Philadelphia. Okay. Uh, you know, insignificant city. No one's heard of Philadelphia, right? Not important uh, to U.S. history at all. <laughs> also, also, he was like, uh, his whole family was Episcopalian. So he was, his dad was like, hey, you're going to be a minister, like, because, you know, you have a gift here for this stuff. But uh, Henry was like, no. I, in fact, I don't even really like this whole religion thing. I want to study <laughs> economics instead. Um, and so he was somebody who was who was self-taught mostly um, because his parents couldn't afford to send him to school. Um, and he read a lot of Adam Smith and David Ricardo. And uh, so if you don't know who these economists are, basically they're the reason why um, economics is a thing. Yeah, Why it's a subject? Is, this is something I think a lot of students are always surprised by when I talk about one date that I remember from my U.S. history class is 1776 for the obvious reason of the Declaration of Independence, but it's also the year Adam Smith mm. writes his Wealth of Nations. And it's like we, we kind of, I don't know, I think a lot of young people especially think like capitalism, for example, as an economic philosophy has just, well, it's just always been a thing. And they don't realize how <laughs> new it is and that this was a thing that, yeah, I guess he would have been right in the thick of like discussing you know, Karl Marx is going to write his Communist Manifesto 10 years after this guy's born. So I guess he's like right in the middle of all these discussions about economic systems and how people should, I don't know, run their lives and stuff. Yeah, uh, he like Henry George thought about this stuff a lot, um, but he at the same time wasn't well connected. And so he was kind of just like most of us, you know, just trying to scrape by to feed his family. Um so he did a, a few things. He wasn't like he didn't go to college to become an economist like you would you would think, you know, there was no Harvard or Yale or anything like that. Like the only thing that was able to feed his family was him being able to uh, write. He was a good writer. And so uh, but he was pretty desperate at, at certain points. I even have a quote here I want I could share with you if oh, you great. want. I'd love that. OK, he wrote about it later on. I always like to share it. Um, quote. I walked along the street and made up my mind to get money from the first man whose appearance might indicate that he had it to give. I stopped a man, 
the stranger and told him I wanted $5. He asked what I wanted it for. I told him that my wife was confined and that I had nothing to give her to eat. He gave me the money. If he had not, I think I was desperate enough to have killed him. <laughs> so this was uh, just a little, yeah, like he was struggling. Did he, um, wait, did he have a wife or did he make that story up? Oh, no, yeah, he had a wife. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good question, yeah. His wife was his actually wife. confined. He did need the money, but st- okay, got it. I don't know if his wife was quite confined at the time, but like, yeah, he maybe exaggerated. exaggerated. But he he yeah. he would he begged for food at certain wow. points of his. But uh, in the meantime, yeah, he was a writer. He was like a struggling artist. Um, eventually, he started uh, writing for the San Francisco Times. That he ended up in San Francisco, hmm. but uh, soon uh, he started writing editorials, and they, that's what finally got him some attention, hmm. um, even outside of San Francisco. And something that he was really caught up in was um, what eventually became the populist movement. This would have been like the around 1870 by this point. Yeah. So, uh, and he was talking mostly about the railroad industry, like in mm. so uh, something that a lot of people were critical about in the 1870s uh, was how the railroads had a monopoly and they got all, all, all the special treatment from the government and. Uh, all this aid and essentially what they did was they, you know, screwed people over and all these, yeah, the robber barons, especially, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. One of the robber barons, uh, uh, what the original one Vanderbilt, right? He Oof. was a railroad man, wasn't he? And a total asshole. <laughs> you don't <Yes>. like him? <laughs> I do not. I do not. Maybe I should do an episode on him. Yeah. For some context for listeners. Cause I'm, you know, I have like a running timeline going in my brain and this makes perfect sense because if he's born in 1839-ish, then yeah, mm-hmm. he is like, a, he's, you know, coming into his own as a teenager when like Karl Marx is writing about his stuff. He's ending up in mm-hmm. San Francisco on the heels of like the 49ers gold rush, right? He's probably getting there when San Francisco and California is getting fully settled by white people, at least. Um, the Transcontinental Railroad, I think, was finished in 1869. So he's he's like there. He's there over on this side of this whole manifest destiny westward march. And he's getting to observe it. And it's interesting as someone who who was very, very poor and now has a voice. I'm really interested to hear what he has to say about our whole growing industrial economy. Yeah. I mean, and as I hinted at earlier, he was a populist before that was even a thing. So as early as 1867, 1868, he's like saying stuff that the populist said decades later. Hmm. So he was kind of ahead of his time. And, uh, he was also like, you know, calling for stuff like a secret ballot, which is a progressive era, uh, thing that that took off. Uh, but because interestingly, did you just, you voted publicly? You just said, like, yeah, yeah. I'm voting for X? Yeah. In really? fact, a lot of times people, you would go to the voting booth and somebody else would vote on your behalf. They're like, uh, who are you voting for? Okay, I got you. I got you, man. <gasps> like, there were so many shenanigans. That went on. Like, you know, all the voter fraud uh, yeah. accusations of 2020. It's oh. like pales in comparison to actually what happened in the 1800s. You know, there's so many... Shady it's like going up and it. ordering for your friend. You're like, oh, I know my friend. She's going to want the French fries. I'm going to order for her. You're like, I know. Yeah. He's going he's gonna to want to vote for the wig or whatever. Don't even worry about it. That's so and then funny. they're like, hey, I'll buy you a beer if you buy it for this guy. Okay. Yeah. Or um, the people get bullied. They would get bullied into sure. voting for a certain way like because, you know, it's all out in the open. Whoa. Uh, and so, yeah, he called against that. But he also – so what's weird about him that kind of made him go away from Karl Marx um, would be – 
he was all about free trade. But, um, you know, uh, it, he, he saw the value in free markets. And, you know, today, a lot of people probably probably would call him more of a libertarian uh, yeah. in terms of like his economic views. But to compensate for that, he's like, well, st- something still has to be done because ordinary people are getting screwed over. There's extreme wealth inequality. You know, he... Uh, Became influential out in California to a point where people were like, hey, you should run for public office. Um, he ran for the California State Assembly, but he got his butt kicked, uh, oh. so that didn't, that didn't last. But the reason why he got his butt kicked was because the railroad industry uh, poured a bunch of money into the campaign of his opponent. Whoa. So, you know, that's what happens when you talk trash against the railroad industry. And that kind of proves <laughs> his point, right? It like sort of proves his point that they have too much power. Mm. Yeah, I want to mention, because this is something where I could see my a lot of students today, if you heard someone being like, I'm for free trade, I'm for free market, whatever, our brains might go to like Reagan or something, right? Our, our, our right. brains might go to something modern. But it's important to note that that was a really like you said, kind of almost progressive, radical, liberal idea in the 1800s, because you have to think about we were going from like, you know, British monopolies on things. And then just the fact that the the new United States was opening up and allowing private business. This is sort of what Adam Smith is saying. It's like this enlightened idea. Hey, ev- any person should be able to create wealth and create a business and, and it shouldn't be governed by the state. But what he's mm-hmm. talking about is that he's observing that in this new industrialization, the U.S. government is kind of allying with these big monopolies and making it so that regular people, that's like what this populist movement is, right? Like regular people are having a hard time achieving that American dream. So I want to say that because a guy in the early 1800s saying, you know, I'm for free trade, I'm for less government involvement in the economy is very different than someone saying the same thing in like the 1990s, for example. Yeah, but I think ultimately at the root of it was this kind of um, corrupted um, partnership between governments and corporations that yeah. a lot of people, um, you know, saw back then the the dangers of that, but they all had different solutions. Mm-hmm. And so I think what makes Henry George unique is um, the fact that, first of all, he had a really actually quite innovative solution and it became really popular for a while. But then after he died... He went into obscurity. Like, you never oh, no. even heard of him. No. And, so, like, his ideas f- faded away as well. It's crazy. It is so crazy. So what, what was his solution? What did he think was the answer? Well, he had went to New York City for the first time. Um, and he was, like, really, it was a powerful experience for him, for him because he was just noticing, like, how wealth was concentrated. And but at the same time, he noted he compared the poor people in New York City to the poor people back uh, home in California. Hmm. And what he noticed was that um, the, the in California, it was like it wasn't nearly as bad. Oh. Uh, and so it's like, OK, well, maybe there's something to this here. Um, and then when he went back home to, to California, um, he said there was a there was one day in 1870 when Henry sat on his horse overlooking uh, San Francisco Bay. And there's this guy that um, had told him saying, hey, there's a acre of farmland nearby that would sell. That's going to sell for a thousand dollars here soon. Mm-hmm. And kind of like that was his aha moment because he realized um, that the reason why so many like there was this extreme wealth inequality was because so much wealth was tied to the land and so much wealth was simply just kind of hoarded and not being reinvested into the rest of society. Does that make sense? 
Yes. And so just the fact that like New York City had been essentially settled by white Americans for so much longer and the land had all been kind of claimed and dibbed and all these yes. sort of things, right? It's like it's it's getting wealth is getting mm -hmm. entrenched. You're a great student, by the Thank way. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> this is awesome. Yeah. No, and so uh, he he called it the land question, though, because he huh. at the root of it, he's like, you know, we got to do something about this hoarding of land because most people build their wealth through assets, of course. Um, and the most common asset was real estate. Yeah, uh, it still is like it's still like the biggest way that um, Americans, most people around the world can achieve some kind of wealth. Right. And so, yeah, he had the, he he started writing a, a series of articles to try to articu articulate his idea. But essentially, um, he turned it all into a, a book, which uh, <laughs> I'm not going to read the whole title. Maybe I will read the whole title. It's kind of fun to read. Yes. Um, his book is called Progress and Poverty, an Inquiry into the Cause of the Industrial Depressions and of Increase of Want with Increase of Wealth to Remedy. Oh, my God. <laughs> Can you repeat that back to me now? No, I wish it were a, I wish it were a cute acronym, though. I wish it like stood for something. Yeah, we'll just call it Progress and Poverty from now on. But essentially, his big idea was a land tax, um, okay. also called a single land value tax. Um, essentially... A land value tax is a tax on the unimproved value of land. So it's oh. only the land itself. It's not what goes on top of it. Not Like if you were to build the skyscraper on top of it or mm -hmm. build this uh, amusement park, that would not be taxed. It would only be on the land itself. Okay. And so the idea is that <laughs> you wouldn't have a bunch of hoarding going on of land where it's not being developed. It's, it's not being re like, they're not reinvesting anything. It's just kind of mm -hmm. sitting there mm -hmm. and, you know, like a take in the old apartment building. In fact, the person who owns that, that really rundown apartment building could just like, they could abandon it. Right. And, and the current system and they're still paying. In fact, a lot of times because the value of the property itself is going way down, they're paying a lot less taxes Huh. And yet the value of the land itself just almost always goes up. So his whole idea was like, hey, look, property taxes just don't make sense overall because you're you could run a property like that's why, you know, it, you, uh, I'm not sure if you're, you're a homeowner or not, but like, OK, like, have you ever like got the appraisal or like found out that your taxes are going up and yeah. you're like, oh, crap, why? <laughs> maybe I should bust some windows out or something. You know? Right. <laughs> Yeah, you want to like lower. Yeah, yeah when someone comes in, you'll be like, oh, no, 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 these aren't new windows. These are awful, right? It's like, it's totally counterintuitive. You, it's your home, but you actually want it to be valued as low as possible so you don't have to pay, to pay less taxes. taxes. And yeah. so, what is what he is, is he arguing for just kind of almost a flat? So, like, I would, I would be paying basically every year the same amount for my chunk of land that my house is on, kind of regardless. Yeah, more or less. Conservationists yeah. didn't like him so much. Well, sure, because yeah, you, you're that. now really incentivized to like build stuff, put a bunch of stuff on the land because you have to prove you're like yes. essentially using it. Which yeah. this, I want to pause for a second because this is really interesting in the scope of U.S. history because this was going all the way back to like 1492. This was the argument that a lot of white settlers were using to justify taking land from indigenous people, right? It's like, well, they're not using it. Like, look, it's all this yeah. just kind of open land and it's not being quote unquote used appropriately. So this is really interesting. This is like the culmination of that, of going like, yeah, literally every acre of land, we need to be able to visibly see it being productive. And 
that and it makes sense. It makes sense that if you're like a poor person that can't buy land, but all but some other guy can buy it all up and just sit on it. That's super frustrating. It's like I can see both sides. That's really interesting. <laughs> and Henry George would counter to the people that are worried about conservation and like you know overdevelopment by saying, "Hey, actually, this would encourage more development on less land, so more efficient land use, which means right. which means like you wouldn't have like." you know, huge sections of cities be vacant lots like you yeah. see in a lot of Midwestern cities. Well, I remember <laughs> learning something that blew my mind, which is that um, people who buy up land, like this is today, people who buy up land, one of the best things they could do is just turn it into a parking lot because then it's literally like, mm. You're just holding onto the land, but you're making money off of it without really having to do much to it at all. And then whenever yep. you decide, actually, I want to build it into a condo or whatever. Okay, great. No big deal. So it's like, that's why you'll walk around and you'll see all these huge car lots or huge parking lots where it's like, it doesn't take a lot of investment, but it's a way to basically just hold onto the land and wait for it to go up in value enough to do something with it. Maybe I'm turning into a Georgist. I think I might, maybe I'm a Georgist <laughs> now. I don't know. Well, speaking of which, yeah, like this book first came out in 1879, hmm. and the weird thing about it was like it was a, a huge hit. Um, it was it turned him into a worldwide celebrity. Apparently, when at his peak, like in the 1880s, Henry George was pretty much like a household name. The only one who maybe was more popular or well known would have been, uh, well, take a guess who you think was more well known than him. Are we talking in terms of like economists? Uh, or writers in general. Oh, oh no, I don't know. <laughs> Uncle Tom's Cabin, Harriet Beecher Stowe. Oh, no. that was well. That was a couple decades before. But uh, oh, Mark Twain would be. Oh, that I, makes sense. Yeah, but he yeah he was like a huge deal. Yeah. And sorry, Thomas Edison maybe was more. Yeah, he was pretty popular too. I guess that freaking. Well, Thomas but if he's Edison. on the not, level of like Edison a Mark fan. Twain and a Thomas, Thomas Edison, Edison, and then you told me a very well-educated person, might I add, you said I'm going to talk about Henry George, and I was like, huh? <laughs> I mean, that's crazy, right? Well, but I hadn't heard of him either until yeah. a, about four years ago, and the reason why is because I had uh, these really passionate Georgists um, write me lengthy emails. Saying you should look at this, you should look at this, you, could, you should look at this, and <clears throat> that kind of brings me to like to today as well. Because all right, so sure, back in the 1880s, uh, this was a big hit, and um, in fact, it, he was so popular because of this book and these, the the land value tax idea um, that people were talking about him running for national politics. Mm. He's going to run for mayor first uh, for New York City was because by that time he had moved to New York City. Oh, okay. Um, and the United Labor Party uh, recruited him. And so, um, but again, the problem he ran into when he ran for mayor uh, was that, you know, you had kind of had these establishment type figures that are like, okay, we own a lot of assets. Yeah. We would lose a lot of wealth if this guy got into, into power. And uh, essentially, the this establishment machine, political machine, <laughs> uh, Tammany Hall connected, of course. Yeah. Um, they, they were like, there's no way. They they were able to, like, yeah, prevent him getting elected. And by the time he ran for mayor, like, the populist movement had, had kind of started. And he was a big reason why the whole populist Whoa. movement started. Like, people don't even know that. Like, he was a, literally the, a big catalyst. And um, my, my understanding of the populist movement, you can tell me if this is horribly wrong. The way I've explained it to students <laughs> in the past is I go, it kind of feels almost like it was Occupy Wall Street vibes, but, like, way more complicated, meaning it was like a massive group of people who all generally agreed that the current system was unfair, 
but then they had mm-hmm. tons of different ideas about what should be done about it. So there's lots of things that get lumped in. You have people out West wanting to open up more silver to be used as currency because of something with inflation that I don't understand. <laughs> and then you have, well, they wanted inflation. You had, um, and then you have this land tax idea. Well, let's just tax, you know, people that own the land so that we can kind of gather that wealth and maybe encourage them to not buy it all up and just sit on it. So that's interesting because populism is like a really vague term that included, and it could have included so many people in American society, but often as many things do, they kind of splinter along nuance, right? They're like, well, I like this thing, but not this thing. So it sounds like Henry George got caught up in that as well. Yeah, no, in my opinion, the 2020s feel a lot like, um, the 1890s, because what I see what's happening on the right is uh, this populism on the right is kind of complements a lot of the populism on the left. And uh, the populist movement itself in the 1890s, you saw kind of the merge merger of uh, unions and uh, factory workers, basically teaming up with farmers. Mm -hmm. And they all have a common enemy, which is essentially um, the railroads and the bankers like those are the two yeah, the like, carnegie rockefeller vanderbilt those guys robber barons yeah, yeah yeah the elites the so-called elites and but yeah so the other thing i didn't mention henry george also there were voter shenanigans for when he ran for mayor as well they freaking voter fraud uh, there was probably voter fraud that, like, legit. I'm not talking well, like 2020. I was going to say, but... in, in Gilded Age <laughs> New York, it's like, oh, yeah, this was like, uh, maybe Boss Tweed was gone by now, but this this is like, I mean, 100% like the most sort of probably corrupt local elections we could ever imagine going on. Yeah. Yeah. Henry George didn't give up. Uh, I think by now he was in his probably 50s or something. Hmm. Um, he... So fl- jump ahead to 1897. He actually ran for mayor again of New York City. Um, by now, actually, interestingly, he was probably more popular than he had ever been hmm. in his entire life. Um, but just four days before the election in 1897, he died. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, what he, he, he suffered a, a stroke and uh, died almost immediately. Uh, but his funeral... Um, 200,000 people showed up to view his body. 200,000 people. Oh, my God. And do we know if he would have won? Was it looking like he might have won as mayor? Yes. That's the other thing. It was looking like he had a really good chance this time because Tammany Hall had less influence. And so, I mean, who's who's to know for sure? But, like, regardless, uh, with that, that really was like um, Georgism kind of died a little bit with him, which is kind of interesting. Because, you know, typically ideas kind of stick around, like, you know, Marxism stuck around quite a bit after Marx died, (laughs) right? Yeah, people seem to still be talking about that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's that's so interesting. A few things for context, and I'm just thinking more for for listeners, too, is that so if he's running for mayor in in New York in 1897, for context, this is like kind of Teddy Roosevelt's New York City. Like, this is... Teddy Mm. Roosevelt had been, until very recently, I think the chief of police... And then he was made of these New York um, bosses got him named to be vice president because they wanted him out of their hair. He was also sort of a reformer. <laughs> so like, we'll put him into the most powerful, powerless position. We'll make him vice president. <laughs> and of course, yeah. in 1897, right, just a few years later, of course, McKinley's going to get assassinated and Teddy Roosevelt becomes president. So it's interesting. Like they're they're probably going to some of the same parties, literally like this is kind of that era in American history. I'm curious what are your thoughts on why Georgism petered out? Like, why did it not stick around the way others do? When I did my research uh, for the video, 
that was the the big question that I was most fascinated with. So I'm glad you asked it. Um, yeah, like, I mean, even when uh, he was alive in the 1890s, some people started to like get uh, get frustrated with him because others wanted to bring up other issues, and he was like, no. A land value tax will solve everything. Yes. Just stick with the land value. And he was like, he was, uh, they want to ne- ne- negotiate with like yeah. other reforms, essentially. That makes um, sense. But, you know, it still had momentum. It really wasn't until World War I that um, the momentum really started to, to stop for Georgism. Hmm. Um, and so, as, as, like, it kind of stopped a lot of things, to be honest. Um, but then after World War, that's yeah, like the right. overstatement uh, of the World War One kind of stopped yeah. a lot of things. Yeah, it's like we're kind of five <laughs> steps back. Yeah, it was always kind of like a, a bit of a pipe dream because sure. essentially it's like everybody who has power, you're telling them they're going to have to give up power. Yeah, and so it would have to be if it was actually implemented, it would have to be phased out over a long period of time. In my opinion, it's yeah. not like you can just snap your fingers and this is it. I mean, if you think about all the people, you would piss off everyone who owns land, which is literally everyone powerful in the United States. Yeah. And so in its place, you know, other reforms happened uh, over the the first few decades of the 20th century, like kind of culminating with Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal programs in the 30s. And like, so, yeah, you eventually had a safety net that kind of alleviated some of those concerns. Um, and then it kind of by uh, the Great Depression, I mean, it was Georgism was way out of style already. I wonder uh, how much, because um, I, I, I can't remember the exact year, but sometime in the 1910s, um, the, we had the constitutional amendment that allowed for an income tax. And I, I, was, yep. I wonder to what extent that probably just made people go, okay, well, we solved it. Like, we don't need another tax now. We've decided <laughs> you can tax people's income and that will be a different way. But well, of course- That was supposed to be only on the super rich, though, when they first oh. implemented it. Like, the was- really, really rich people were only supposed to pay it. But that was a new precedent, right? It was like, we'd always said you can't tax income because, you know, that was like one yeah. of the reasons we rebelled. But yeah, so I wonder to what extent, especially landowners could then point to that and say, see, we, we did a tax. We solved yep. it leave our land oh, yeah. alone too yeah absolutely interesting um and so yeah obscurity and then randomly like you'd be surprised like it just if when we're done recording here you should just look it up briefly like you know go to the georgism subreddit on reddit and you'd be amazed at the passion like over the last just few years and, and yeah. it's, it's a, particularly a phenomenon with gen z i've noticed interesting folks a lot younger than me um, that are really now all of a sudden like there's a renaissance of Georgism or Georgias, as they call themselves. That makes so um, much sense to me, though, because, you know, I think about it. I'm a millennial who's lucky enough to own a home. But like I mm-hmm. can totally see how appealing this would be because I know there's a lot of complaints <laughs> with especially younger people to say, for example, we now have corporations literally buying up property and becoming landlords. And there's people going, that doesn't feel right. Like we shouldn't have people on the streets and like apartments sitting empty you know, that are serving Airbnb customers or whatever. So it actually makes perfect sense that maybe now is the time for for Georgism to have a renaissance. And history rhymes. And so I really do think that I strongly believe this, actually, that the 2020s mirror 1890s in many ways, like especially with the extreme wealth inequality. Yeah. And so we're seeing like similar trends and like people are realizing, well, neoliberalism hasn't been working out so well. But we don't want to, like, jump to Marxism because, you know, that doesn't look too well either. So, like, maybe this is another good alternative. And then I want to end this by saying this is a very new development. But the city of Detroit, um, one of the biggest cities in the country, mm-hmm. although it's been losing population dramatically, as most people know, they like they have a lot of um, 
blight and uh, a lot of vacant lots there. Yeah. But they also have a lot of hoarding of land. Mm -hmm. People owning land that the buildings on the land are is in horrible shape. They've been paying hardly anything in taxes for decades. Yeah. The mayor and the uh, city uh, council has just voted, or they're getting ready to vote, to implement a land value tax in Detroit. So it'd be the first city to try it. Whoa. And, so and we'll, see, we'll see if it works. <laughs> and so, again, just to clarify, as because I'm really fascinated by this, the idea would be that um, landowners are paying a tax and are they, are they only, is the idea they're paying a tax for land that is not being like, quote unquote, put to use? Or is it, is it everyone in Detroit who owns land is going to have extra taxes to pay? Do you, do you have any insight on that? So yeah, what they're going to do is they're going to lower property taxes dramatically for everyone in Detroit. Detroit mm -hmm. currently, if you live in Detroit, you pay more property taxes than anyone else in the entire state. Oh, wow. Um, and so they're going to lower property taxes dramatically, but not completely because they still rely on that tremendously. And then in its place, they're going to have this land value tax. Um, and it will be phased in as well. It'll be over a period of five years, I believe, or something like that. Um, so people will have enough warning. But yeah, like they're going to try it out. We'll see if we'll see if it works. <laughs> That's so fascinating because even I know my husband has mentioned this. He's been like, wow, did you see you could buy like a whole city block of Detroit for a, a <laughs> relatively low amount of money? And it's like, I can see why so many people think, well, what a good investment until you think about the fact that like, well, are you just going to then let it sit there? No one's going to be able to use that land any other way. So it's almost like the same discussion around Air are we allowing Airbnb rentals? Are we like there's this whole discussion right now about homes and people without homes and like can you how many different properties should a person own that they're not actually living in or using so mm -hmm. okay well we'll watch detroit and we'll see what happens and we'll see if maybe georgism maybe he's just like a century too early yeah a century ahead of his time he should have yeah. been in gen z and they would have loved him <laughs> oh man i don't even know what gen he generation he was they didn't even call <laughs> generations back then when he was alive yeah yeah i was gonna say like gen alpha but like the greek the greek alpha yeah okay so in summary this is what i've this is what i've learned you tell me if this is a good takeaway so henry george middle of the 1800s Grew up relatively poor, became a writer and a kind of an, econom an economist in that he's observing wealth inequality. And he has a solution, which is tax just the base land. Um, and especially for people who are not like utilizing the land. So people that are buying up a lot of land and letting it just sort of sit there where other people can't afford it anymore. Um, and it got co-opted or it kind of became part of the populist movement. It sort of died out when he died and other progressive measures took over. But maybe now Gen Z and TikTok will be the ones to bring it back. Is that a good summary? Uh, yeah, that's pretty darn good. Okay. I, I would say that <laughs> you got the gist of it. Good job. I learned. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Okay. Well, thank you so much for teaching me about Henry George. Now I know that he was not a British politician from the early <laughs> 1900s. And uh, now I can bring this up next time someone wants to rant about, uh, I don't know, any sort of land issues to me, which nowadays is actually a lot, surprisingly a lot. I have another like fun fact to throw at them. That's yeah, so awesome. Yeah. Th thank you so much. My pleasure. Spread the word.
Thanks so much for listening and stay tuned because the next episode is going to be the second part of this conversation with Mr. B where now I turn around and teach him about an amazing woman named Margaret Fuller. She's considered like America's first feminist writer in the mid 1800s. And, you know, Susan B. Anthony basically said like she was my inspiration. So, you know, kind of a big deal. In the meantime, please support this podcast however it makes sense for you. The most direct and efficient way to support this podcast is to join my Patreon, patreon.com slash anti-social studies. That is the main way that I keep this podcast going and make sure that I can put out episodes more regularly and make sure that they're really high quality. But either way, share this podcast with a few people who you think might like it, talk about it, send it to your friends, post about it. Any of it helps. I really appreciate it. And stay tuned. I'll see you next week.